You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am your host, Nick Peters, once again, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today's no exception. We're talking about an interesting topic. It's one we've talked about a couple of times on the show before, I think. Uh, definitely when we had uh, E. Randolph Richards come on and talk about his book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, so you can go back and look for that one. I believe it was in May of last year. But today we've got Warner Mishka on the show. Now, who is he? He's been serving with Mission One since 1992. He's currently Executive Vice President in his role as Director of Training Ministries. Mission One's purpose is to train and mobilize the church, focusing on cross-cultural partnerships to engage the unreached and serve the poor and oppressed. Mission One's indigenous partners are engaged in evangelism, church planning, and holistic ministries in such countries as Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, Lebanon, Syria, and India as well as Pakistan and Thailand. Mission One is engaged in a long-term vision to help its partners develop sustainability through business for transformation strategies. Warner has a long-term special relationship with Mission One's partner in the Middle East, where Arab nationals are building a network of house churches through holistic ministry among various Muslim peoples. Warner's experiences there have led him into a passionate pursuit of understanding the pivotal cultural value of honor and shame in scripture in the cultural's majority world. Warner's recently published book is The Global Gospel, Achieving Missional Impact in a Multicultural World, which is what we'll be discussing today. The singular issue which this book addresses may be defined by posing this question. How can the honor-shame dynamics common to the Bible in many majority world societies be used to contextualize the gospel of Christ in order to make it more widely understood and accepted? He has done training on the dynamic of honor and shame for ISI, Frontiers, TOAG, as well as various church and ministry groups. His seminars are designed on the basis of adult learning theory for a rich learning experience. As Director of Training Ministries for Mission One, Werner has designed and produced three resources to equip followers of Christ for cross-cultural missions engagement. Operation Worldview is an introductory DVD missions curriculum for small groups inspired by the Perspectives course. Operation Worldview has been used by some 800 churches and mission leaders in America, Canada, and other nations. The Beauty of Partnership, a six-week small group curriculum based on a dirt learning theory to help mission teams gain the skills to achieve successful cross-cultural partnerships. And the Father's Love Gospel booklet, a pocket-sized booklet to help believers know and share the blessing of Jesus Christ in the language of honor and shame. It is an evangelistic resource based on the story of a prodigal son, available in English and Spanish. Through Mission One's partner in Lebanon, an Arabic version has also been developed and widely shared. And since 2004, Werner has served on the resource team of COSIM, Coalition on the Support of Indigenous Ministries, a fellowship of evangelical organizations with a common interest in the support and development of majority world ministries. Werner has contributed significantly to the design of COSIM's annual conferences. 
Currently living in Scottsdale, Arizona, Werner and his wife Daphne are members of Scottsdale Bible Church, where Daphne serves as a teacher of a special needs ministry. Werner has also been a student at Phoenix Seminary in their intercultural studies program. Werner and Daphne have two adult sons and two grandchildren. Yeah, that's a quite an impressive resume there, but Werner, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you so much, Nick. It's my joy and my honor to be with you. Mm-hmm. Well, this was my first interaction with you getting to know about this book and such. So I suspect some people in the audience probably haven't heard about you as well. So can you tell us a little bit about it? First, how you became a Christian, and then how you got involved with what you're doing today. Well, I became a Christian as a boy. Uh, actually, I was watching the Billy Graham uh uh, television program one evening and uh, heard the message of uh, of grace from uh, Dr. Billy Graham and as a boy I, I, when he gave the invitation I thought I I want to I want to do that I want to give my life to Jesus and have my sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life so I prayed with my parents um, in my home and uh, not long after that um, was interviewed by uh, people in or deacons in the in the Baptist church which we attended and uh was baptized uh shortly after that. Mm-hmm. So that's how I became a believer and and uh, I got involved with Mission 1 uh because as um a a person involved in business um I I had my own small business in communications and graphic design uh, and an evangelist by the name of Bob Schindler came to our church, and I had grown to appreciate his ministry. Uh, this was in, in uh, Lee, Massachusetts, uh, uh, some 25 years ago, I think. And and uh, and Bob had recently come back from Kenya, where God touched his heart in a profound way to uh, pursue a vision to assist indigenous Christian leaders in their ministries in Africa. And when he shared this vision, I asked Bob, this was just at the very beginning of what God was doing in Bob's life regarding the vision, and and I asked Bob, do you want to write down your vision with me? And uh, maybe you've not written it down yet. He said, okay, let's go write it down. We went to my office. We wrote down the vision. That's how we started uh, working together. And uh, a couple years later, I actually moved my family uh, from uh, Massachusetts to Tennessee, where the ministry at that time was was located. So that's how I got involved with Mission One. Where and in Tennessee? May I ask oh, where in Tennessee? Yes, yes, sure. It was in Nash in the Nashville area, actually. Okay. White House, Tennessee, is where we lived. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I began a uh, a journey to learn about missions. And uh, I'm a, a a very avid reader. And I've also worked in collaboration with a number of other uh, uh, missions leaders. And uh, so it's been a 20-plus a year uh, journey of learning, doing, learning, doing, reading all the way, and uh, uh, producing various resources. And, uh, uh, and then recently is, is, is uh, the book, uh, The Global Gospel, was published uh, just at the end of uh, 19, or excuse me, 2014. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked about Tennessee because that's where I'm located. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, and it's Nashville is about three or four hours away. My sister lives there. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what I, I find different about your book also is that you not only deal with the approach of 
going out on missions and how this would help, but also what difference it makes here because there are many, many Christians here who will never step foot in another country. Not because they don't care for missions, just they don't have the resources to do it. They'll gladly support those who do, but they won't do it themselves. So they could be listening and think, well, this stuff would be important if I was going on a mission, but I'm not, so I probably can't get something out of this. But you're showing in your book not only how you can get something out of it for the Bible, which has been shown in other books, but from a pastoral perspective, what a difference it can make. Yes, yes. When we think about honor and shame, uh, sometimes we shy away from the subject because uh, shame is taboo. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's discussed in, in our churches. Um, it's not something that pastors study when they go to seminary. Uh, I was uh, preaching at a church here in um, the Phoenix area a couple of years ago, and uh, this illust- I'm going to tell a story that illustrates the point. Um, after I preached a, stor- uh, preached a message about the prodigal son and about how in Eastern cultures uh, honor and shame is more prevalent than in Western cultures, and I led into then the story of the prodigal son and, and how that... Uh, ex- that 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 parable exhibits so many honor shame dynamics. I also told a story from my own life about uh, when my my dad was uh, uh, when I was a teenager. My father became mentally ill, and it caused a tremendous amount of embarrassment and and shame in my own life. And anyways, we showed from the prodigal son how God uh, covers our shame and even restores our honor. And after the message. Uh, that I preached, a woman in her uh, probably uh, late 60s or early 70s came up to me uh, and uh, she said to me, "Uh, Werner, thank you so much for your message. You know, uh, when I was a little girl, something happened to me and even though I've been a Christian all these years, I've never been able to get rid of that that sense of, you know, that awful thing. And uh, and she didn't go into detail about what that was, but it was obvious it was probably sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And so she had known that she was forgiven, but there was something in in her life that made her feel unclean, uh, defiled, and uh, she was probably the victim of someone else's sin. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, a message about salvation that only dealt with uh, uh, salvation as a cure for sin and guilt didn't touch that deep part of her soul. So these are the kinds of things relative to honor and shame that are very uh, significant for people everywhere, including Western culture, including many, many evangelical churches, where Mm -hmm. people know they're forgiven, but they have a persistent sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Well, one uh, aspect with that I'd like to cover is a statement that I think is found first on page 42 of your book, but it would be shocking, I think, to most people in the West today who are good Bible-believing Christians, and that's it. Culturally speaking, the Bible does not belong to you. It's not your book. You know, that, that that has to be a slam in the face, I think, to a lot of people who are reading the book and say, wait, wait, I've got so many Bibles right here. This is a book that my family is shaped on. 
This is a book that's built off civilization. How can you say it's not our book? Yeah. Uh, well, the the exact uh, uh, sentence to repeat what you said is culturally speaking, the Bible does not belong to you. It's yep. not your book. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what I mean by culturally speaking is this. Here in the West, you know, here in the year 2015, we're used to uh, very modern conveniences. Uh, we are very um, individualistically oriented in our culture. And, uh, of course, uh, the culture of the ancient Near East was, was very, very different. Uh, we live in a democracy. The cultures of the ancient Near East were dictatorships. Um, we are uh, very egalitarian. We have uh, a very place a very high priority on equality, whereas uh, the people of the ancient Near East were more likely to measure the worth of a person based on their hierarchy, based on their age, position, title, or, or tradition, or rank. We communicate very directly in the West, normally speaking, but uh, in the ancient Near East and, and even in today's uh, many non-Western cultures, people communicate more indirectly. You know, here in the West, we love to cut to the chase. We like to, you know, give me the bottom line. We want to communicate directly, but most other cultures are indirect in their, in their style of communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very individualistic. Uh, the peoples of uh, the ancient Near East were not individualistic. They were group-oriented. They were collectivistic. Uh, we are very task-oriented. Most uh, non-Western cultures and, and uh, the people of the ancient Near East, Middle East, were much more relationship-oriented. Uh, these are the kinds of cultural values that uh, we are not aware of because you know we live in our own culture mm-hmm. uh, and it's the air we breathe so it's hard for us to think that at a different time and culture people actually thought about life in a different way or they mm-hmm. they they made decisions in a different way mm-hmm. and um, so that's one of the things we're trying to bring out is that the cultures of the Bible are are is is what makes the Bible actually a very different book. Uh, you mentioned the Bible misreading Scripture through Western eyes. One of the things they say in the book is, in their book, and and which I quote in my book is, is that reading the Bible is a cross cultural experience, and so that's why I I make that rather outlandish uh, statement culturally speaking. Yeah. The Bible does not belong to you. It's not your book. Yeah, I was very pleased when I started reading your book and saw you were quoting misreading scripture. Western eyes. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, yeah, this guy's quoting the, the, the best stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, this stuff, it, it helps answer so many questions, I find, that people have as well. Objections about the Bible and uh, people were saying, for instance, well, why didn't anyone write down all these things Jesus was doing so soon? Well, that was a different culture. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, pointed my interview with Brent Sandy on the lost world of scripture for that one. And then even in a group Bible study, it can get very interesting because, I mean, I don't correct people every time. Or, but, yeah, I, I kind of want to, yeah, I kind of twitch a little bit when I'm saying, 
And I hear people talking about a sin in the Bible and saying, oh, can you imagine the guilt that they were feeling at mm. that point? Anything? Yeah. Um, no, they probably weren't feeling a bit of guilt. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Nick. One of the books that I read in, uh, as uh, for my research in the Global Gospel is a book by a man called uh, named Zeba Crook, who wrote a book called Reconceptualizing Conversion and Conversion. And one of the things he he brings out in the book is the myth of psychic unity. Uh, and what he means by that is uh, that the way we um, are wired psychologically in 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 our modern world. Uh, sometimes we think people who lived 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, that psychologically they they processed information or they thought about themselves in a way that is identical to the way uh, we think about ourselves and the way uh, we feel about problems and situations and when things go wrong. And that idea is called um, psych, uh, uh, psychic unity, and what Zeba Crook points out is that that is um, mistaken. Uh, we cannot assume that the way we process information, the way we think about things emotionally or intellectually, is the same kind of process that people go through who lived um, 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there will be similarities, mm-hmm. but it's not the exact same thing. Yeah, one thing we could say, for instance, is, for instance, when David commits his sin with Bathsheba, there is guilt, but the guilt isn't something he's feeling internally. The guilt is a judicial guilt. You've committed a sin. You are guilty before God. That doesn't change culture to culture. Correct. But how one deals with a sin. That changes. David does has no sign whatsoever he experiences guilt until his prophet comes to him and utters those great words, "You've a man." Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it um, this is where um, the collective identity is so profoundly different from the individualistic identity. Um, it's uh, I think it's uh, uh, Bruce Molina in his book. Um, uh, the New Testament world? Yeah, the New Testament world, anthropological insights uh, uh, for the New, New Testament world. Uh, he talks about how um, people make decisions about their own lives as though they were looking through the lens of the group that they are a part of rather than just thinking about uh, their lives as individuals. They mm-hmm. see themselves through others' eyes. And we do that to some extent, of course, ourselves in the West. We're concerned about our status. Uh, We're concerned about the clothes we wear and the kind of car we may drive. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not to the same degree. Um, We are much more willing to, uh, uh, to, to raise our hand and show our superior knowledge, you know, in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in an Eastern classroom, uh, the uh, that kind of individualistic um, aggression is is not uh, nearly as as prominent. 
There's a saying in, in, in the Far East that says that the grass that sticks up highest is the first to get cut. You know, the blade of grass that sticks up is the one that's going to get cut down, so don't stick up, you know, your own hand. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't uh, be an individual that, that uh, sticks out from the group. This is something that uh, it can get us to read something entirely wrong in the Gospels, I think. When we read some of the Gospels and we see Jesus speaking and someone in the audience asks a question, our mindset is, oh, geez, the teacher is giving a lecture and here comes a student wanting to have a question. No, no. What's really going on is this person is challenging Jesus and see if he can answer the hard questions. And then we look at Nicodemus and say, Oh, poor Nicodemus, he was so ashamed, he didn't want to let everyone know he was impressed with Jesus, and he came at night privately to ask a question. And now, Nicodemus did what he was supposed to do. By coming at night and coming privately, Jesus knew his questions were sincere. Indeed, indeed. And what you're pointing to, Nick, is one of the honor-shame dynamics uh, that I, I address in the book, which is called Challenge and Repost. Oh, Repost yes. is the word R-I-P-O-S-T-E, which mm-hmm. uh, means a uh, in, in the sport of fencing, it's uh, a defensive move, which also uh, turns into an offensive uh, act by by the person with with uh, uh, who is defending himself with his sword. And so, in the Gospels, when Jesus is interacting um, with the Pharisees, it follows. Um, what social scientists have discovered are four steps uh, in this this game of push and shove, this this honor competition, mm-hmm. which is called challenge and repost. And uh, if I may, Nick, let me. Can I just uh, give those four steps to the to the challenge and repost uh, social dynamic? Even better if you can apply them to a scriptural story to yeah, make it sure. work out. Sure. Yeah. So. Let me uh, just, uh, here we go. So um, the four steps are, first of all, the claim of worth or value. Secondly, is the challenge to that claim or refusal to acknowledge the claim. The third is the repost or defense of the claim. And the fourth step and final step is the public verdict of success awarded to either claimant or challenger. So... We can give any. Uh, we can, we have an, a couple of examples uh, in the book. One is from uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, and in verse 8 it says, "For the Son of Lord, Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath." Jesus is making a claim to honor. That would be uh, the first step. And verse 9 it says, "He went on from there and entered their synagogue." Uh, verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand, and, th- and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? So here we see step two, which is the challenge to Jesus' claim of honor. And and uh, the scripture is very plain that they're not looking to simply get more information. Uh, the Pharisees, um, uh, the leaders of the synagogue, were uh, uh, concerned about Jesus' claim to honor and they were challenging Jesus' claim. It says, so that they might accuse him. And then uh, verse 11, Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will 
not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So that's the first part of what uh, is the step three, the repost or the defense of the claim. Jesus uses uh, rhetorical questions to undermine the accusation of uh, the, the religious leaders. And then he goes on and he heals the man. He says, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And that completes the repost that um, is the defense of Jesus' uh, claim to honor that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And then it continues, uh, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew. Many followed him and healed him. He ordered them not to make him known. And then verse 23, which is a few verses down, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And that consists of the public verdict of success awarded uh, to the claimant or the challenger. And when we see in the Gospels over and over again the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whatever religious leaders, he was constantly engaged in public in this uh, type of honor competition um, that social scientists call uh, challenge and repost or, or sometimes they say it's the game of push and shove. And... Um, and so it's, it's really helpful to understand uh, the social dynamic when you're looking at, at these gospel stories. Well, let's uh, look at that and see how important it is, because you use the terms game and competition. Some of us could be saying, well, geez, we just had the Super Bowl here, and yeah, one team lost, but it wasn't an excuse to go out and start killing people or seem like our very lives were on the line. In fact, some people are very gracious losers. So, I mean, if I were talking about a game or a competition, what's the big deal? Yeah. Well, there's another dynamic uh, that social scientists have identified uh, that is common to, to honor-shame cultures, which, of course, you know, the ancient Middle East was an honor-shame culture, still is today. And that dynamic is called the image of limited good. And that simply means, uh, uh, and I'll just read this sentence from the book, it is the belief that everything in the social, economic, natural universe, everything desired in life, whether land, wealth, respect and status, power and influence, exists in finite quantity and are in short supply. In other words, if you... Uh, go into a community and someone gains an honor, by definition, someone else must lose uh, some quantity of honor in their, own, uh, in their own life because there's only so much to go around. Respect and status, honor, exist in finite quantity and are in short supply. Now, this doesn't mean that it's actually so, but it's the right. belief that it's actually so. Right. And that belief, that's why we call it the image of limited good. That's how social scientists describe it. And, uh, 
the quote uh, I, I read uh, uh, is, um, is from Jerome Nary in his book, Honor and Shame in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a brilliant uh, uh, explanation of how the honor-shame dynamics worked in the Roman Empire and how they are uh, seen uh, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So that dynamic of the image of limited good, of, of, of win-lose, if someone... If someone wins and someone else has to lose, uh, that contributes mightily to the to honor competition and even ultimately to violence. Uh, an example of this, Nick, uh, if I may continue, is sure. maybe also found in um, uh, the story of Saul and David. You know, when oh, when yes. uh, David uh, defeated Goliath. Uh, David, it says in, in 1 Samuel 18, David returned from striking down the Philistine and the women came out of, out of all the city of Israel, Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? You know, a, a modern military uh, general would uh, be proud that one of his own um, would, would have defeated uh, an enemy. But from Saul's perspective, as David's honor and popularity increased, in his own uh, community, in his own, among his own people, because of the image of limited good, from Saul's perspective, his view of his honor diminished. So it was win-lose. It was there was only so much honor to go around. David's honor went up. So by definition, Saul's honor went down, and this contributed. Uh, significantly to to Saul then wanting to kill David. Now, at this point, we do have to say, as Christians, we know that there is infinite honor and infinite joy and infinite love available. So, we're not saying the culture is infallible in any way, but we do have to understand that even if we don't agree that there is such a thing as limited good, we have to read the text and realize they believed there was such a thing as limited good. Exactly, exactly. In fact, um, I I make a very, uh, I think a thorough case in the book that really so much of the Bible it, uh, communicates that, that through God uh, and through Christ for us as modern day believers, as uh, after after the cross, after the, the, the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Jesus, the image of limited good is overturned. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, for example, Paul writes, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm-hmm. He struggled in Philippians 1, as he wrote. He, he was struggling with shame. He says, I pray that I will not at all be ashamed. He mm-hmm. was in prison at the time. He could have been ashamed as a uh, Roman citizen uh, uh, languishing under house arrest or in prison, uh, he was concerned about the perception of others who who uh, uh, may have thought um, uh, that there was something wrong with Paul for being in prison, and 
and, and so and and he then pondered the fact that he could die uh, from being imprisoned. But then he said, "For me to live as Christ and to die as gain." So the shame of imprisonment, the shame of a a, a possible quote unquote tragic death at the hands of the Romans was overturned to become for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There was no shame uh, in dying because of what he would gain as a follower of Jesus Christ and uh, being uh, joined to uh, Christ's resurrection. And uh, so really so much of the Bible overturns the image of limited good. Well, let's go to a concept that we've been talking about and really spend some time focusing on it and I'd like to go based on something you said just now. Paul was concerned about the perception that he had in there. And this gets into the idea of honor and shame there and what it means because most of us today would have said, well, Paul, you know, you need to get past this thing about worrying what other people think about you. I mean, don't you have your own self-esteem? Don't you see your own value in yourself as a person? What does it matter what other people think of you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, that's easy for us to say, living in individualistic culture uh, here in the West. However, um, I, I would point out two things. Uh, one is Paul was definitely concerned about how other people perceived him. You see this in Philippians. Uh, and... Um, uh, and you also see it in, in particularly, I think, in Second Second uh, Corinthians. But the second thing I point out is that is that uh, as Western Christians, um, uh, I think many of us are much more concerned about the the way other people think about us than we may be willing to admit. Mm-hmm. I think many pastors are highly concerned about how their congregations feel about them. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think sometimes uh, we go uh, we go to uh, to bed at night and and have a hard time sleeping because we're worried about how other people may be perceiving us. So um, mm-hmm. these dynamics of um, honor and shame are not uh, just for ancient peoples. I think um, uh, there's a grow. I think there's a growing uh, uh, there's growing evidence that even in our own Western culture, we are uh, a lot more concerned about the, the the way other people think about us than we uh, uh, admit. You know the Facebook phenomenon. Oh yeah. You know people posting on Facebook, whether it's a picture or their most recent status update. Uh, you know, when I post something and, you know, boy, 13 people said they liked it, you know, isn't that, <laughs> that's yeah. a form of, that's a form of collectivism. You know, we're very, mm-hmm. uh, we're thrilled when other people mm-hmm. uh, like what we say or mm-hmm. what we post. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, these things are alive and well in our own culture. Sometimes I even try and tell people, if you want to get an idea what it's like, try and think about high school. Where sure. you want to be part of a clique, you want to be part of an in-group, you didn't want to be standing out alone, unaccepted by others. Everyone wanted to belong to some group to be recognized in some way. I mean, peer yes. pressure is all about that. 
Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I think high school is a very strong honor-shame culture. Mm. And, um, you know, I think a lot of work environments are strong honor-shame cultures. Mm -hmm. I think, I think you know, peer pressure is not just... Peer pressure does not go away after age 18. <laughs> high school never ends. I mean, I mean, wherever we find ourselves at at home at work and play we are concerned about the way others perceive us and mm. that is proper and good as long as it's not extreme i mean god made us to be social creatures so uh we are connected in relationship to others and uh, we're not trying to say that this is all evil it yeah. it can't become evil it can become unhealthy uh, but we are made to live in community. Well, let's uh, talk though, about what you've been talking about with honor and shame and get the terms understood. Ben Witherington, who I I'm sure you you're familiar with him. He's a, I, I heard him give a talk recently. Well, he, might get, he might not have given the talk recently, but I heard it recently where he was talking about how if you go to someone in our culture, you want to stress how important something is, you say, this is a matter of, and the audience goes, life and death. So, yes, life and death is what are most important for us today. But if you were in a culture like the ancient Roman Empire, it'd be, this is a matter of honor and shame. Whereas you would honestly rather die than be shamed. Yes, yes. That uh, points out a very interesting interesting point um, when um, when people from honor shame cultures are shamed there are typically two kinds of responses the first one and this comes from something called uh, the, the uh, honor shame or the compass of shame I should say and it's um, it's let's see where is it in 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 the book it's yeah it's on page 76 of the book and um in in the compass of shame the eastern pole is called attack self the western pole is called attack other and the attack self uh response to shame uh, we have the self being put down, uh, masochism, and suicide. Uh, in the attack other pole of the compass of shame, we have blaming the victim or lashing out verbally or physically. And this can sometimes manifest itself in uh, what we have become uh, familiar with recently, which is called honor killings. Now, honor killings have existed for millennia, uh, but in the West, it's become more. Uh, we've become more aware of it because of the 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 cultural divides between the West and particularly the Islamic world. Although it's not exclusive to the Islamic world, and um, so uh, and 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 this is this is a very striking aspect of shame. Shame leads to hurtful behavior uh, one of my uh, the chapters in my book as you know Nick is deals with the pathology of shame 
and whether and uh, uh, whether shame really leads to um, uh, hurtful behaviors. We make a distinction between how guilt leads to healing behavior, whereas guilt leads to hurtful behavior. And this is based upon uh, more than 40 years of research done at universities about the effects of guilt on people versus the effects of shame on people. And it was discovered that guilt leads people, guilt-prone people are more likely to, um, when they feel guilty, to uh, ask for forgiveness, to repair the situation, to somehow reconcile or fix the situation, whereas shame-prone people are more likely to either um, hurt themselves or hurt others. And so the implications of this, Nick, for the gospel are really profound. Okay. Well, let's uh, get clear on uh, what we're talking about. When we say honor and shame, really, though, what do we mean exactly for, so we can w- recognize those implications? Yes. Honor is the... Uh, is the sense of respect, of reputation, of um, dignity, of self-esteem that you have in your social group. Shame, on the other hand, and I'll use a definition from Brene Brown, shame is the fear of disconnection. And again, that's something that... uh, is defined socially. It's the fear of being disconnected from your a group. It's the feeling of unworthiness uh, as defined by the group that you are a part of, whether that's a family or a group of friends or your neighborhood, your community. It's, it's the fear of exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, there are differences in the way shame is experienced in the West uh, compared to the way shame is experienced in the, in the Eastern Eastern world, um, and these are what I'm talking about here are, are, are generalizations, of course. But one of the ways that we experience shame uh, primarily in the West is that it's an emotion, whereas in the in the Eastern world or in the majority world, shame is not as much of an emotion as a demotion. And again, that points to the social aspect. It's your honor status level going down mm-hmm. relative to your community, rather relative to your social group. Now, one aspect of that that we might miss in our Western culture is that if you're disconnected from the group because of something shameful, essentially you have lost your identity. You're really a no one. You might as well not exist. So when we read 1 Corinthians 5 and say, exclude the man who's sleeping with his stepmother, exclude him from the community, that is the worst punishment you could get from a group. Absolutely. Absolutely. It reminds me of uh, in in, uh, Leviticus 13, how is it that the, the leper was to be treated? Uh, he was to be excluded from the from the community. He had to live outside the camp. He had to live alone. Of course, there were good reasons for that. Uh, it was in order to 
prevent the spread of disease. It was a type of quarantine, which which God uh, uh, said that that as as a people they needed to practice when someone had leprosy or or that type of skin disease. Uh, but it also ended up in a in a, a very powerful dynamic of exclusion and and uh, uh, and shame. So. These insights uh, help us to really capture the, some of the emotion that is, is just underneath the surface of, of the scriptures. Okay. Now, since we've got clear what we're talking about, you said that this leads to really important points of the gospel. Okay. Really, what difference does it make? Okay, the cultures are a little bit different, but how does that change the gospel? Well... <clears throat> The way we normally articulate the gospel in the West, Nick, is through what some scholars call a legal framework. Mm -hmm. So we can think of, for example, the four spiritual laws, right? Yeah. Um, uh, something, it's a gospel tract that was developed by Campus Crusade for Christ uh, many years ago under the leadership of Bill Bright, and God yeah. has marvelously and uh, marvelously used this resource. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands have have come to Christ as a result of the the use of this gospel tract. But it is a frame. Uh, it, it incorporates a legal framework for the gospel. Mm -hmm. It talks about laws. It talks about forgiveness from your sins. And by forgiveness of sins, we're talking about behaviors, things that you have done wrong, mm -hmm. and uh, behaviors that were in violation of God's laws. And uh, this is where sin as the cure for guilt is, um, is emphasized as the gospel. And we are in no way saying this is wrong. Of course we're saying this is part of the gospel. God forgives our sin and guilt. Mm -hmm. The word guilt is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, there's no question that God also presents himself as a judge, both in the Old and New Testament. However, we can also see from the testimony of Scripture that sin involves more than guilt. And if we, if we present a message that it focuses exclusively on guilt but ignores the dynamic of shame, we are um, uh, unwittingly, I would say, uh, withholding so much testimony from Scripture that deals with uh, the effects of sin and shame in our lives. And so... Uh, and because of the fact that guilt uh, has a tendency to lead to healing behavior, whereas shame has a tendency to lead to harmful or hurtful behavior, uh, in terms of our life here on the planet um, and our relationship with people, uh, we need a gospel which also addresses shame because that aspect of the gospel may in fact be more transformative 
than the gospel which focuses exclusively on guilt. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help but think of how uh, N.T. Wright has talked about the uh, four spiritual laws compared to the gospel. And he says, yes, can you imagine Caesar going around? And Caesar's message was seen as gospel also in saying, yes. and having his, uh, having his messengers go through the streets and say, Caesar is Lord, and Caesar has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that doesn't make sense, yeah. does it? And and most of us uh, in our culture, obviously, we could say, yeah. Um, when you look at that saying, the focus is on us, and Paul promise we think too much about ourselves already. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the first couple of chapters in the Book of Romans, how is it? that sin is described. The word guilt does not even appear in the book of Romans. And sin is described, if you just read the first two chapters of the book of Romans, sin is described in honor-shame language. It's described as dishonoring God. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talked also about dealing with the actions, such I recently read Tim Keller's book on prayer which mm. it's an excellent book if anyone hasn't read it and I read it because for me it is an area I struggle with and one thing he said is we pray so much about our actions and things that we've done wrong but we don't pray for the internal attitudes that led to those actions mm. mm-hmm. and but, yeah, that, that is a key point because we deal with the guilt in many cases it's pretty much saying get rid of these consequences from us instead of the cry of David creating me a pure heart of God. Boy, that's a very good insight, Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one of the things that helped me to understand uh, this difference between guilt and shame, uh, which builds upon what you just said, is that guilt is about what I've done. Shame is about who I am. So if, if the gospel only addresses uh, forgiveness for my sins, for what I've done, mm-hmm. and it doesn't address the heart part of me, the internal part of me, mm-hmm. who I am, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, there will be a limited uh, kind of transformation, I think. Yeah. Now, this doesn't mean that people aren't transformed uh, through uh, the, you know, a gospel that focuses on, on uh, a guilt alone, uh, because, you know, the Holy Spirit has power, God's Word has power, mm-hmm. people are transformed. Uh, what we're saying is that in our articulation of the gospel, in our preaching of the gospel, we can be more comprehensive, uh, reflecting a broader testimony of Scripture, so that the Holy Spirit has even more opportunity to work in our lives to transform people's hearts and, 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 and lives from the inside out. As you say, uh, oh God, give me a clean heart. Uh, and, and it's from that inside out perspective that God has the greatest uh, uh, potential to transform us, I believe. Yeah, I think that uh, when we come with our perspectives, we don't really realize how deep the problem is for us. Uh, when Clay Jones was on my show last year talking about the problem of evil or something else he said about prophecy, he said, why is it that Jesus says, for instance, don't look at a woman 
to lust, because if you do, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's because it's if you're looking at her and you're looking at her for a purpose of desiring her, I mean, not just wow at someone beautiful, but wow at someone beautiful. I want to take her. Then what you're doing is you're saying, you know, if all things were equal, if I could get away with this, if the benefits were greater than the cost, I would do just that to her. Mm. If mm. you hate your brother, then if the benefits outweigh the cost and you could get away with it, you would murder your brother. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting and curious thing because in Reformed theology, you know, one of the tenets is total depravity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we affirm the utter fallenness of humanity, not only in our behavior, mm -hmm. You know, which would be reflected in the, the statement, I did that horrible thing, mm -hmm. but also in our being, where the emphasis is on the I. I did that horrible thing. You yeah. know, as, as the core of my identity mm -hmm. is, is sinful. But what if we have a blind spot about honor and shame in Western theology? Mm -hmm. Isn't then there a tendency to focus on the atonement of Christ as the means by which sinners are justified and absolved of their sin and guilt while generally being silent about sin and shame. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is an issue because we may believe in total depravity, but if we're only articulating a gospel that focuses on sin and guilt and we're not also uh, incorporating the broader testimony of Scripture which deals with our shame and with our internal core being, uh, it could be that um, we are missing a vital part of, of the total gospel. In some ways, you could say we're kind of doing spiritual or plastic surgery. We're remaking the patient so the outside looks good, but inside there are still problems. And, you know, the evidence for this, uh, Nick, is if, if you were to just take an honest poll or... Uh, you know, a blind uh, way of, of polling the people in a congregation. And if you were to ask them, do you feel forgiven? Do you know that you're forgiven of your sins? The, the vast majority would say yes. Mm -hmm. Do you still have anything that you're ashamed of? Are, is there a persistent sense of uncleanness or defilement? Or mm -hmm. is there is there a shame that still bothers you. I think that there are numbers of people in our own congregations for whom they know they're forgiven, but shame persists. Okay, let's uh, use an example of this and try and be, see how this works from a pastoral perspective. Let's suppose a horrible crime has been committed. A man has raped a woman, okay? And now, a year later, the man comes to Christ and he realizes the, the wrong of what he's done. And then a year later, the woman also comes to Christ, and she knows very well of the wrong that has happened to her. Both of them have shame, but in a different sense. We, we'd say, that guy, he should have shame. He deserves shame because he's done something terribly wrong. That woman, she's got shame, but she should not have shame because she was a victim. She did nothing wrong. But both of them will have shame. What does the gospel say to each of them? The best thing I can think of 
in, in a situation like that is the, the wonderful story in Luke chapter 5 where the man with leprosy came and fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, why did he have leprosy? Was it because of his own uh, willful behavior? Probably not. He was, he was living in the world and he became diseased because disease exists in the fallen world. Um, and he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus then touched the leper and he said, I will be clean. Now, there was some transfer that happened there. Somehow, Jesus touched the leper, and he normally, as a normal Jewish man, would have, been, would have become unclean by touching the leper, according to all of the, 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 the laws that we see in the, in the uh, Pentateuch about uh, cleanness and uncleanness. He would have become unclean, but there's no testimony that Jesus uh, became unclean as a result of, of uh, violating the purity codes and touching the leper. What happened is that something transmitted to the, the leper, which was the purity, the holiness, the cleanness of Christ himself, the leper was made clean and whole. And then Jesus also said, go show yourself to the priest, and that was to follow the instructions in Leviticus 14 for being reconciled to his community. Thereby his shame could be lifted by, uh, uh, by being restored to uh, his family and friends. Mm -hmm. Now, how does this relate to your story, Nick? Here's how. The woman who has been raped feels unclean. A message about sal salvation from guilt will not touch her uncleanness. A message about salvation from shame will touch her uncleanness. And what's so curious and so beautiful, as I did my research in this book and, and, and dealing with purity language and the, the honor-shame dynamic of, of purity, um, we, we discovered that in the New Testament, the Bible retains purity language that was, comes from Leviticus to describe salvation, to describe discipleship. First uh, John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't stop there. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we are this, the object of someone else's sin or the victim of someone else's sin, we participate in the unrighteousness of, of fallen humanity. Mm -hmm. We may be the victim of someone else's sin, but we, uh, but we, and so we don't have the guilt of that sin, but we still suffer from the uncleanness, the defilement, the unrighteousness of that, of that fallenness. And when Jesus, when the Word of God says, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's a part of the gospel that deals with, with sins, I believe. It includes that aspect of sin when it's committed against us. Mm -hmm. uh, in Hebrews 1.3, 
it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God having made purification for sins. So, in fact, the, the book of Hebrews has, uh, is very prolific in using uh, uh, purity language to describe the effects of the atonement on those who follow Christ. And so here's, here's, a, here's a way for us to access what the gospel means in a way that includes guilt but goes beyond just a cure for guilt. It also incorporates uncleanness, defilement, uh, being shamed as a result of someone else's sin. Mm-hmm. Now, how about the person who committed the sin? So the man who committed uh, the the sin of rape, he experiences guilt and shame. It is obviously uh, unquestionable that he needs to be forgiven by God for his sin and guilt. However, he also experiences probably profound shame in his community for being known as someone who has committed this sin. So how does he experience the recovery or the covering of his shame? How does he regain honor? I think this is where the, the, uh, uh, the community of, of the, the faithful, the, the body of Christ, the church, needs to express acceptance to all believers. That acceptance is is something that violates the status quo. That acceptance is radical. Uh, in Romans uh, 14 or 15, I think it's Jesus says, uh, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." Um, the Bible calls us to accept one another, and and so his reacceptance into the community, obviously with. Um, with uh, the safeguards and, and with accountability and, and, uh, um, and wisdom, uh, that brother needs to be reincorporated into the family of God in a way that he uh, can regain his, his sense of honor. That, that's what I would say to that question, Nick. Okay. Do, you have, do you have any additional thoughts about that? No, nothing at this point. Okay. Yeah, I, I do agree about the whole point of acceptance. I'll, I'll say, uh, first off, let me make, take up this point a moment to say that uh, right now we've got Warner Mishka on, and we're talking about his book, The Global Gospel, and how this, how I understand the gospel can affect how we do evangelism in the majority world. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have Tawar Anderson, who I met at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary Conference, the Defend the Faith Conference. He's going to be talking to us about worldviews and worldview thinking and why it's so important. So next week, Tawar Anderson. And by the way, this one is coming out late because Warner had to reschedule or something for uh, some time with his wife. And since, since Valentine's Day, I thought, yeah, we can, we can do that. And, I did have a guest scheduled for Valentine's Day, but they came down with some things, so we're just going to wait until the 21st for the next show. But uh, one thing I think about is the total idea of acceptance. You know, I saw uh, your wife uh, 
works with special needs students at her at your church. Uh, my wife and I both have Asperger's, so we're very familiar with special needs people, mm-hmm. and we're quite happy that we found a church that did accept us, mm-hmm. knowing we're so radically different. And church even has me do some work for them, which is incredible. They actually appreciate and want my input there. And we've also got a baby in the congregation who's got Down syndrome, and no one ever raises any objections or anything. And I tell people, you know, is it, if you can take a couple of Aspies like us and make us feel right at home in your group, you've done something right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Nick, um, what you're pointing out um, somewhat indirectly is that many churches are not places of acceptance mm-hmm. uh, for those who are a little bit um, outside the norm. Mm-hmm. And instead of being places of healing for shame, sometimes churches are places that inflict shame on people. Right. And this, you know, this is a problem. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons that uh, shame is ignored by pastors and theologians is because shame is difficult to deal with. Shame is taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, for a pastor to preach on shame implies that he might need to deal with some shame in- issues in his own life and have to, uh, you know, become vulnerable uh, about that. Perhaps with a with a professional counselor or, um, you know, with other individuals. And so shame is shame is tough. Shame. Shame gets down to the most, some of the most painful parts of our own lives and, and uh, our own personal histories. And, and so uh, I think there's a, a real uh, need for churches to, to develop greater acceptance for people. You know, Jesus never... <laughs> I think Jesus teaches that we can accept everyone. It doesn't mean we approve of everyone. But he's called us to acceptance of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's called us to engage in relationship with people. And we may not agree with everyone. We may not, um, you know, we, there's just, there is a frontier, I believe, for local churches mm-hmm. for us to practice acceptance in, in fresh and daring ways. You know, when we've been talking about this also, uh, a lot of churches, I think, can come to people who are different as well and be like King Saul with for leadership many times. I wrote a post just mm. last week, and it's going to be pretty popular. It's called, Pastor, I Don't Want Your Job. It's about how I've contacted many, many churches and said, hey, I'd uh, be willing to come and help you out with apologetics, do some sort of program for you anything I don't ask to be charged anything just help mm-hmm. out and so many churches say no no we don't need that we don't need that and honestly I've had the thought that there are many churches that I'm not as welcome to do something like this at because 
So there could be pastors, sadly, who look and say, hmm, here is someone young, seminary trained, he's knowledgeable. What if mm-hmm. the congregation likes him more? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think that's a reality in many cases. And I, I, I've seen that talking with other friends in the field. And so I said, Pastor, I don't want your job. You, you do a whole lot of other things. And frankly, I'm terrible at those things. Mm-hmm. I'm just wanting to teach. Yeah, yeah. These are these are some of those thorny issues, Nick. That they're part of the imperfect churches that we're all a part of, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, our becoming a part of those imperfect churches is not <laughs> improved when we join them. You know? Yeah. Because uh, we're all we all have our flaws, and um, yeah, it's. It's it's a sad thing, but, you know, God uses the church. The local church is the primary witness of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, you know, God uses pastors with all their flaws and warts, and he uses Christian leaders and, and uh, people with teaching gifts like, like you and me uh, with all of our warts, and somehow... Uh, God accomplishes his good purposes on the world despite us, you know, and that's how, you know, Jesus ends up getting the glory because it's, you know, it's with us or without us, you know, and, uh, but it is, it is a sad thing um, that, that uh, sometimes Christian leaders can be very Mm self-protective and, um, you know, the threat of uh, someone getting more claim than, uh, than themselves, uh, you know, it's you know, actually, it is an honor shame dynamic. It's yeah. it's that image of limited good, isn't it? So, you know, the 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 practice of rivalry exists in the church. Mm-hmm. It exists in, exists in the American church. It exists in the majority world church. And I believe that when a Christian realizes that they have an honor surplus in Christ, it sets us free from engaging in honor competition, or what the Bible calls rivalry. Mm -hmm. And this is the wonder of following Christ, is we have a new source of honor. Our honor has been relocated into uh, Christ and his kingship, Christ and his kingdom. You know, Philippi, or 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about us being a part of a royal priesthood, um, a royal family. And uh, Colossians speaks of us being transferred from the kingdom of his, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have a new source of honor. The question is, is do we experience that honor so that we don't suffer from an honor deficit? Do we actually sense and feel that we are part of God's honorific family so that when something says, somebody says something negative against us, we don't you know, necessarily have to become defensive or we don't have to feel ashamed because we've got so much honor in Christ himself. Okay, let's suppose someone's listening, and I'm sure someone is, and saying, that sounds really great. That, that sounds awesome. I'd like to feel that. Mm. I don't. What do I yeah. do? 
Yeah, really good question. You know, I I've explored the uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32, of course, we, I think many of us know it well. The, the honor-shame dynamics in, in the prodigal son story are, 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 are there from the very first sentence to the end of the, of, of the parable. And I was wondering as I studied this, um, is there a way for believers today to somehow experience what that prodigal son experienced is there you know when he came home and his father ran to him and he he uh he kissed him and he gave him a ring for his finger sandals for his feet he put a his own best robe onto his smell onto the young uh prodigal son's uh smelly uh dirty body you know he probably still smelled of swine you know um is there a way today that we can experience that covering of our shame and that rest, restoring of our honor? And as I was reading through Romans um, one time, I came across this very interesting verse. Um, it says, let's see, verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, is that in chapter 5? That's chapter 5, verse 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I thought, okay, when God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that has to be something which is more than just a cognitive uh, thing you know mm-hmm. something in our head there's yeah. there's something there it's poured he it's poured into our hearts it's poured into the deepest part of of who we are somehow the holy spirit in, invades and and permeates the deepest parts of of our being so that we experience the um the covering of our shame the restoring of honor now I would also add, Nick, that that notice the scripture says has been poured into our hearts. There's something here that goes beyond just the individual. Mm-hmm. This is God speaking as He normally does in in His in His uh, holy word to God's people as a community. Mm-hmm. So there's a community aspect to this. Mm-hmm. Church life, body life small group experience uh, there needs to be this kind of acceptance and covering of shame uh, that we experience in our body life in our community life as believers as well and this um, to me this is the horizontal dimension of, of what we're talking about and that can only happen when people are vulnerable it just if if it's if if shame is restored, when, uh, as as if the restoration of someone's honor and the covering of their shame deals with something that's the most uh, intimate and uh, personal, deep part of their hearts, then somehow there needs to be an environment where we are able to share 
from the deepest uh, parts of our hearts. And then to, to hear from our brothers and sisters, we love you. We accept you. You are gifted. You are part of us. The honor is for us together who believe. We are the people of God. We have been restored in our honor before God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. See, that's the social aspect. That's the horizontal aspect that where, where we can experience that. Does that help? Yep, it sure does. And uh, before we get into the next part, I'm going to go a little bit early and let people know that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast right now. And I hope you enjoy it and I hope you subscribe. And if you would leave an iTunes review also, that would make me very happy to see that. Of course, that's probably part of that honor-shame dynamic going on there. But um, I just really appreciate that. And keep in mind, what we do is listener supported and we could really use the donations and financial support from you it would really help and if you want to do that we also have a website now at deeperwaters.ddns.net and you can go right to the home page I'm clicking to go there right now and there is a button to donate now when you uh, click the button as I've just done to donate it takes you to the Risen Jesus page for donations and you can think hey, um, I thought I was connected I thought I was donating to Deeper Waters not Risen Jesus where Risen Jesus is the group that makes it tax deductible for us you take our donations and give it to them you're, and give it to them and then send me a message, an email, something like that, and I can be reached at A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A-N-I-C-K at gmail.com. And yes, that's on the homepage of my website. And say, hey, uh, I made a donation, and I want to go to you. And then I'll send it to Mike and Debbie Lacona, and they will keep an eye out for it. And they see it, they will make sure we get it every time. Now, also, on that very link, you'll find a link to our Amazon store. And you can purchase books through there. And it's got a list of books out on the show. I still need to update. I need to put Warner's book on there and some others. That's going to happen in time. If you're going to buy these books anyway, why not buy them in a way that they can support a ministry? And oh wait, there are some other books that are available, but I think are good but that's also because I wrote them or had a hand in writing them one of the latest ones that's come out is one I wrote on the Apostles Creed called A Creed for the Ages and that one does in fact have a dedication in it to the church that Allie and I found that we call home together so these are all ways that you can support us and we really need your support so please consider taking some time. If you're enjoying the fruit of deeper waters, please take some time in the harvest as well. Now, Warner, do you have an organization you'd like people to be able to support as well? Sure. Um, I work with a ministry called Mission One, and the website is mission and then the numeral one dot o r g, and uh, we are engaged in. Uh, uh, partnering with indigenous ministries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, 
and uh, I, as, as Nick, you mentioned in the intro, and when you read some from my bio, um, you mentioned that I have a long-standing, uh, deep friendship with a pastor in the Middle East, and uh, this has been a great inspiration to me, actually, in writing the book, The Global Gospel, because he would he would talk about um, things being a big honor or a big shame in his culture, and I really just wanted to understand that. And uh, so I'm very grateful for my friends in the Middle East who have have uh, spurred me on this journey of this learning journey uh, in in the in the scriptures about honor and shame. But one aspect of what you've uh, talked about, we've talked a lot about people who seem to think I I I. But let's to give another interesting aspect of that that could surprise us. On the other hand, that's in Romans two. And I read this passage, and it, it's something I never really noticed until you pointed it out in your book. Mm-hmm. I tend to be an ambitious person, and so when you get to Romans 2, you get to verse 7, it says, To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, sometimes we, if we thought someone was seeking for glory and honor, we think, <laughs> Oh, they are are such a self-seeking, selfish individual. But then the very next verse contrasts that. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, we've got our heads being at that point. Okay, you're seeking glory and honor, but you're not supposed to be self-seeking? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To us as Westerners with a legal orientation for the gospel... Uh, who and with people concerned about guilt and for people who do not recognize that the love of honor is one of the honor-shame dynamics in ancient Near East culture and still uh, prevalent today, this verse is, is troubling. This verse doesn't... These verses in Romans 2, verses uh, 6 and 7... Uh, don't make much sense. Uh, but there it is. To those who in patience, who, to those by patience, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, obviously, we need to use the principle of Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, and we can't use this as, we can't build a doctrine around this verse. But what we can see from this verse is that the love of honor was part of the Roman Empire. Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He was tapping into a, uh, an emotional and social dynamic that was taken for granted for those who lived at that time. And... Uh, uh, the same dynamic is also present in other uh, parts of Romans. For example, uh, meaning the love of honor. You can see it indirectly when, when Paul says we are more than conquerors. What is it that conquerors achieved in Rome? Conquerors they achieved, achieved victory in great, battle. Yeah, they achieved victory in battle and for that they built monuments and arcs through mm-hmm. which the uh, the generals and their soldiers would 
would uh, uh, walk in parades and they would be greatly honored. When the in Bible fact, those parades were called tributes, I believe. Ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two books that I can I can point to which are very helpful mm-hmm. in understanding uh, the dynamic of honor and shame in the Roman um, Empire. The first is a book called Empire of Honor by J.E. Lendon. Mm-hmm. And this book uh, is published by Oxford University Press originally. And uh, it's just a tremendous insight into how honor and shame was the pivotal cultural value by which Rome operated as an empire. Uh, the second book that I would point you to is the commentary by Robert Jewett called simply Romans colon a commentary. Romans a commentary. And this is an 1150 page book which is maybe the greatest work of scholarship that I own uh, in my library. And it's just a magnificent, magnificent book uh, 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 commentary. Uh, I'm not saying that I agree with everything that he he ends up uh, pointing to in in his commentary, but in understanding the social science dynamics, or the social science and the honor shame dynamics, which um, were incorporated by the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church at Rome, mm-hmm. I think it's unparalleled. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. This commentary uh, over and over again brings out the honor-shame dynamics in in, uh, the book of Romans. Mm -hmm. And uh, I quote actually Robert Jewett in my book uh, concerning these very verses that you you brought to our attention today. Mm -hmm. Now let's also talk about since uh, the gospel being global, because we've talked a lot about things for America if someone goes overseas in mission work and they go to an honor-shame mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. and they give the gospel, they often have a great danger that first off they are speaking in guilt-innocence terms and they're not going to connect a bit to their audience and then mm-hmm. they're also speaking in Western terms because we've tended to marry Western civilization to Christianity and so a person is more prone to come back and say, well, I must have done something wrong. No one was responding to what I said. Yeah, that's a common concern that I think many missionaries have had. And mm-hmm. and I think one of the reasons, and it's, it's, it's really a part of the human condition, um, and it relates to worldview. We're not aware of how our own worldview shapes the way we we think and do theology, um, our theology as Westerners is shaped in part, at least, by our Western values. Now, this is this can be hard for us to to uh, grapple with because it's kind of like a fish swimming in the ocean. Uh, and then uh, studying the water in which he swims, how would he do that? It's difficult. How do we become aware of the Western air that we breathe uh, in uh, day by day? It's, it, it, we simply take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But 
it's it's simply true you know the the uh the truth that is in scripture is bigger than anyone's theology and usually when we de- when when a, a theology is developed it answers the questions of the theologian or of the community or people that that theologian is a part of and so there can be things inside of a culture which actually overlap with biblical truth, but because it's not a part of the theologian's culture, it doesn't get on the radar of that uh, of the work of theology that 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 person may write. Mm-hmm. So take for example, honor and shame. Mm-hmm. Honor and shame is in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The word guilt and its derivative. Uh, derivatives in in the Hebrew and Greek are less than half as frequent as the word shame and its derivatives uh, in the Old and New Testament. So why is it that guilt is a serious matter of theological inquiry, but but guilt, but, excuse me, but shame does not um, get on the radar of our systematic theologians? It's because it's not a part of um, of Western theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's it's a part of more prominent part of of honor shame cultures. But because Western theology is more guilt innocence oriented, mm-hmm. we don't answer the questions about shame. Mm-hmm. And consequently, we believe, or we I'll, I'll use this phrase: we assume the gospel. Uh, mm-hmm. This comes from David Bosch's um, uh, incredible work of scholarship called Transforming Mission. Uh, th- the practice of assuming the gospel is the practice that says the way I articulate the gospel in my culture is universally resonant for other cultures. Mm-hmm. It's just as meaningful to someone in a completely different culture as it would be to me. Mm-hmm. And that's just not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Now, in our culture, when we go up and we present the gospel to people, we'll get objections, and I think these objections are on point. Like I've spent my whole life pretty much answering them. Like, well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Don't science and religion contradict? Hasn't the Bible been changed over time? Things like that. Yeah. And you could get some of that in Eastern cultures, I'm sure. There are people who have intellectual objections yeah. to Christianity. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. on a more personal level, what are some of the objections you get when you get the gospel? What are some of the barriers in the East that keep people from accepting it? Well, let's begin with, uh, in the Muslim world, one of the objections that people have to accepting Christ or the Western uh, or, or the biblical view that Christ uh, is the Son of God who uh, died on a cross, a shameful cross, and then rose again, is that they believe that, that God would never allow his honored uh, messenger to be so horribly shamed uh, because honor and shame is such a prized 
uh, and, and dominant way of making decisions and ordering life in, in the Muslim world uh, for God's messenger to be as horribly shamed as Jesus was is a great offense. Mm-hmm. See, this is where we can actually agree with the Muslim mm-hmm. who takes offense. We can say, you are correct, you are right. It is, it is uh, uh, unthinkable that God's own son would uh, be so horribly shamed. Why did this happen? How could it be? Interestingly, when we look at Ephesians chapter 2 and we have that uh, ancient hymn that the early church uh, uh, probably sang, um, about the incarnation, the, the the shameful death, and then the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, what we see is that the shame of Christ, the dishonoring of Christ, the humiliation of Christ was vindicated. And um, just to read uh, a few verses from Philippians 2, It says that uh, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is a this represents the downward spiral of losing honor to uh, experiencing shame. And then we have verse nine. Therefore. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we can point to here and I think this in some sense satisfies the Muslim offense about the shamefulness of Jesus' death is that his shame was vindicated. Mm-hmm. He was given a name above every name. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is emphasized in, in layers uh, here in the verse. God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name. What is that talking about? Ascribed honor. His honor that is above every name, every honor, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth uh, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This represents the kind of, uh, we talked about challenge and repost earlier. Mm-hmm. I look at this as a cosmic challenge and repost, where Christ made a claim to honor through the incarnation. He's, he was challenged. Uh, he then arose from the, from the dead uh, as a, in a cosmic repost, he was given a name above every name, and then the public affirmation or the public recognition of who wins and loses, we see that also here. At the name of Jesus, uh, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will publicly be affirmed as this, the one who has the highest imaginable honor and exaltation in the universe so we can respond to the offense of the Easterner who says how could God's messenger be so so shamed how could God's son be so humiliated 
by pointing to these verses in Philippians 2. You know, this also ties in with a Western objection as well. One of the groups that I seem to still have a patience somehow to deal with are groups of people known as mythicists who argue that Jesus never even existed at all. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they'll say is, well, geez, if this guy was going around doing all these miracles and having all these people follow him, why did no one write about him? Or at least so few people wrote about him. And what I tell people is, look, in the ancient world, how you died was one of the main ways of seeing how your whole life was. And any writer who was studying Jesus and then gets to the point, Jesus was crucified, it's like, oh, so much for that one. And they would not consider someone who was crucified worth talking about. In fact, it'd be hideous to talk about him. And I, I say, look, it doesn't surprise me that so few people wrote anything about Jesus. It surprises me that anyone did at all. Yeah, that's a very good point uh, that you make, mm-hmm. Nick. Um, one of the foundational works of scholarship that my book is based on is Honor and Shame in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And he points out that uh, at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, the boys of the Roman Empire, I think maybe some girls, but I think primarily boys, went to school and they learned a literature of praise and blame. It's called epideictic rhetoric. Uh, and they, um, they learned a specific form of, uh, learned how to write a specific form of literature, which is basically what we would call today a eulogy. It would begin with the, uh, the genealogy of the person in question, then it would describe whether there was anything special surrounding the birth of the person in question. Then they would list his achievements uh, in life and uh, uh, how he gained honor through his achievements. And then they would describe his death and whether there were any uh, special circumstances surrounding his death. What we see in the Gospel of Matthew is a formal uh, replication of epideictic literature, literature of pr- in praise of men. And, uh, and so the death of Christ in Matthew is described, yes, uh, depicting his shame, but it also describes how he conquered uh, the cross, how he retained his honor and was then... Um, uh, it can be looked at as, as a shame, uh, not as a shameless death, but as, um, as an honorable death. Mm-hmm. Now, you said his book. You're talking about Nehri, right? Uh, Jerome Nehri's book, yeah, yeah, which I quote extensively mm-hmm. in, in my book, The Global Gospel. Well, returning to objections from the East, one under, I understand you could get many times, and I say this as I understand because I've never been out of a country actually would be someone you could present someone a gospel and they say okay but what about my family yes what what are they saying when they say that yeah well if someone becomes a follower of Christ in certain social contexts if their family has been committed to a different religious tradition Islam Hinduism Buddhism to become a believer of Jesus Christ is oftentimes 
considered a departure from the honor of one's own family. It's a departure from one's, even perhaps one's national roots. So, you know, Thailand is an officially Buddhist country. Uh, Morocco is an officially Islamic country. Pakistan is uh, is an officially uh, Islamic uh, nation. Of course, Saudi Arabia, uh, Arabia officially Islamic. The country of Nepal used to be a Hindu kingdom. It is no longer uh, structured that way politically. Um, uh, of course, we know there are um, perhaps uh, 700 uh, million Hindus in the country of India. So, uh, so to come out of a religious tradition where you um, can point to generation upon generation of people believing a certain way, to leave that tradition can be seen as shameful. And oftentimes, a new follower of Christ will be excluded from their community. So how can the gospel be communicated in a way that um, mitigates or reduces that sense of shame? Um, this is one of the uh, crucial issues in, in missions today, um, is how can a person who becomes a Christian, for example, from a Muslim uh, family, uh, retain his sense of community? It's a tough question. There aren't a lot of easy answers. But we can, uh, I can offer a couple of, of hints that maybe will we'll spur some additional thinking and, and conversation among our listeners. The first is this. And uh, I think it's in Acts chapter 16, I believe, where uh, Paul is um, in jail. Paul and Barnabas are in jail. Yep, that's Acts 16. Yeah, and uh, of course there's an earthquake, mm -hmm. and uh, Paul and Barnabas are set free, in a sense, by the earthquake, but they don't actually... Silas, excuse me, Paul and Silas, but they don't actually leave. They end up talking to the Philippian uh, jailer, right? Right. And, how do they present to the, go the gospel to the Philippian jailer? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household or and your house. Okay? So here, the gospel is presented not to the individual only, but to his clan. And I think that there... Um, is much that we can learn from this example is that is that um, uh, people can receive Christ not only as individuals but they can also receive Christ in community with their family. Mm -hmm. So how you do that, um, you know, there I'm sure there's much more discussion and, and research and reading and, and practice that we could explore. And that the other thing that I would point out, uh, and and this <clears throat> this I also deal with extensively in in, in my book, is that uh, the New Testament itself contextualizes the gospel for different audiences, and uh, the work of Dean Fleming. Uh, in his book, Contextualization in the New Testament, is 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 a source that um, is particularly 
uh, uh, profound and helpful and insightful on this subject. Uh, this book won the Christianity Today Book Award a few years ago, but it is a great work that shows how New Testament authors themselves borrowed the thought forms of their audiences in order to articulate the gospel in ways that their audiences would be more likely to receive the gospel. So what does that mean for us practically today? Well, we pointed out you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son can be a way to articulate the gospel in the language of honor and shame. Um, and we have a resource called the Father's Love Booklet, which, which does that. It's a little pocket booklet. Um, but, but think with me about this idea of purity language that's in the Bible. Purity is one of the honor-shame dynamics that we talk about in the global gospel. It's rooted in so much of the Old Testament Purity language is retained in the New Testament to describe salvation and discipleship and what it means to live a, a, a faithful life with Jesus. And ponder this. If you look at the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, and the Muslim world, all of them have ritual purification practices. Mm-hmm. What we see in the Old Testament are also ritual purification practices. Read the book of Leviticus again, and you see it uh, as plain as day. The word cleansing, sanctification, washing, purifying. Uh, These words appear over and over again. Read uh, uh, Leviticus 16 about the Day of Atonement. Those, that purity language is used over and over again in Le- Leviticus 16 concerning the Day of Atonement. Mm-hmm. What's so powerful, Nick, is that in the New Testament, that purity language is retained in describing what it means to follow Christ, to be mm-hmm. a part of his family. And why can't we talk about salvation in terms of Def, uh, uh, cleansing for defilement, cleansing for our um, sin and uncleanness rather than sin and guilt. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, it's, it's using the language of the Bible. Yeah. And, and this has the potential to resonate far more deeply with people for whom ritual purification is still widely practiced. You know, as modern evangelicals, ritual purification, that's ancient, it's old, it's weird, it's, it's strange, uh, you know, some of it's gory. It's like we don't, we don't even want to go there and think about it. But for many non-Western peoples today, this still uh, resonates. And so I argue, um, if you go to my... Uh, if you go to the website for the Global Gospel, globalgospelbook.org, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a pl- page of free resources, and I have an article there called The Gospel of Purity, and this um, details how this all can, can uh, be worked out and, and used. So that's, I know that's a long answer, Nick, but um, uh, it's one of the most beautiful things that I discovered as I did my research for the global gospel is that this, these purity practices 
of the Old Testament, which we think of as relics and ancient and weird, are still practiced by many people today, maybe in a different uh, fashion. Um, but people are concerned about being unclean and how to be cleansed from whatever it is inside of them. Uh, and uh, in the Muslim world, in the Buddhist world, in the Hindu world, and um, so why not use the language that's already in the Bible about about the cleansing power of the blood of Christ yeah. uh, to articulate the gospel? I mean, could it be, in fact, it could help us if we have some rituals going on every now and then that do symbolize our purification. We know the rituals don't make us pure, but they would show our purification. I'm thinking with even Lent coming up at some Methodist churches on Ash Wednesday, they'll take some ashes and they'll put a cross on the forehead of a person who comes forward. And that might seem small, but it could be a reminder. I mean, they can go and look at me and say, yes, yes, I see the cross. I know I'm forgiven. And they're not forgiven because they've got a cross on their forehead. But the ritual is a reminder that he's been forgiven. I think that's a very, very good insight, Nick. Mm -hmm. The, you know, we're not just cognitive people. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not we're not uh, just brains walking around. Right. We are we are human beings that you know live in space and time. We touch things, we feel things, we hear and smell things, and and in the Old Testament, when you see. Um, the people uh, doing these, uh, God, of course, gave them the instructions and the boundaries and the guidelines. Why, why did God do that? Because he was uh, giving them boundaries and laws and, and rules, yes, but also he gave them culture. And uh, our own Christian culture can either reinforce uh, the truths of Scripture or our culture uh, our Western culture can denigrate the things that we believe. We need in our own churches art and and uh, rituals and practices that that reinforce that create memories uh, for us to to point to to experiences and and that we can experience in community, which affirm these transcendent, uh, powerful truths of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, uh, my wife is actually an artist, so she specializes in anime, which comes more from Japan and honor-shame culture also. And for her, it can be incredibly healing to do a picture and yes. see what yes. it is. That the scripture already says, but see it lived out. And I, I, I have to agree with that. There was a time when I was even getting some counseling for something, at church, and I sometimes arrived before, and, and I go to this private room, and there was a stained glass picture of Jesus knocking at the door. There wasn't a handle on the outside, and it's obviously a picture of Revelation 3, and I'd just sit there, and I'd look at that picture, and I'd just think about it so many times. Mm, mm, yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Very good point, Nick. Mm -hmm. You know, also, uh, when we talk about this, uh, it gets us to another Western objection that we've talked about the shame of a cross, and it's often said where Jesus, with Jesus going around and this message being on, I mean, who wouldn't want to believe the gospel? You get forgiven, you get resurrected life. I mean, 
Come on, who won't want to believe that? And my answer is, everyone. Everyone would not want to believe that. Not because some of the benefits were nice, but because it was shameful of all because you were following a crucified Messiah, and then resurrection, even back then, was seen as shameful because that just ties you back to the shackles of prison of a body. And if you're in that culture, you're placing all your identity on a guy who was crucified as a traitor to Rome. Sorry, not going to go there. Yeah, you know, we, we can't get around the fact that um, the cross is an offense. Mm-hmm. We can understand it. We can use honor-shame dynamics to articulate it and communicate it in a way that's perhaps more meaningful to people in other cultures. But that does not take away the offense of the cross. And, of course, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this, is, this gives insight to Romans 1.16 where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Why is it that he had to, to say that I am not ashamed? Because... From a cultural perspective, it was a very shameful thing mm-hmm. to connect your identity to someone who was crucified in that that horribly humiliating uh, death called crucifixion. It was the most humiliating form of execution ever devised. And, and so for Paul to say, I am not ashamed, is is to uh, say that my honor as a, as a human being is connected to what many would say is the dishonorable crucifixion of Christ who, uh, who then ultimately conquered that shame and rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes, I'm, uh, sometimes I'm asked, well, when people see the, the tract or the, the gospel booklet, the Father's Love booklet, uh, does this help people, uh, more people become followers of Jesus Christ? And I can't point to any numbers on this, um, but I have a sense that uh, more people understand the gospel, but there are some who will say, I do not want a father who covers the shame of his son like that. I do not want a father who will restore the honor of someone who has so horribly shamed his family. That's not the kind of father they want. Because they want to be able to boast in their own achievements. And of course we know at the center of the gospel, or uh, it, uh, when we think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, uh, it is we are saved by faith not of works that no one can boast. Mm-hmm. It points ultimately to, you know, the glorious goodness of God, but it also affirms how utterly hopeless we are in our own ethnicity, in our own works, in our own achievements to gain favor and honor and forgiveness before God. Well, it's uh, been a fascinating two hours. And people, if you think we've covered the whole of this book, we've just scratched the surface. 
Now I can humorously say at this point, it's called the global gospel, but too many times I've been tempted to say the great gospel, which I'm sure you would agree with as well. But it is a global gospel, a way to reach everyone in our world. Now, I wonder if uh, people who have been listening, they kind of like have their appetites juiced up a little bit and say, hey, uh, I want to find out more about this. This seems very fascinating. Do you have a blog or website or way people can get in touch yeah, with you? If you just type uh, in a search for the global gospel, you will find uh, uh, the website globalgospelbook.org. You may also find the uh, uh, Amazon listing for the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a blog, which is wernermishka.org, W-E-R-N-E-R-M-I-S-C-H-K-E.org, where I, I blog uh, periodically. And uh, so... Uh, Boy, I'm so grateful, Nick, for this opportunity. Thank you very, very mm-hmm. much for the opportunity to talk with you about uh, these themes of, of honor and shame, what it means for the gospel, what it means for ministry in our multicultural world. And and uh, I'm really, I'm just uh, so grateful to you, Nick. Thank you very, very much. Hey, it's been my pleasure to have you because this stuff, to me, it's fundamental to understanding the Bible. And if you're wanting to get the book on Amazon, you can get it right now. Nine ninety nine on Kindle, twenty four ninety nine hardcover. And it, it's worth it. Three hundred fifty two pages packed of information and as my own Amazon review says every pastor should read this book. Now Warner, do you have uh, any final words before we wrap things up? I have one <laughs> one more thing I want to share, Nick, and that is read the Bible. Mm. read the Bible mm. read the Old Testament read the New Testament read it every day um, I try to uh, color code my Bible uh, using colored pencils uh, to bring out the honor shame dynamics it's just thrilling to me currently I'm in the book of Deuteronomy it's thrilling to me to see the honor shame dynamics at work uh, uh, over and over again in scriptures and there's no substitute for reading the Bible lovingly, regularly, uh, uh, spiritually with a sense of, uh, of hunger for God. Uh, so that's my final encouragement. Read <laughs> the Bible. Well, Werner, it has really been a fascinating show. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about in many ways. And it's been great having discussion and bringing up the best in scholarship and many cases from Nayray to Melina to Crook to anyone else. And so thanks for coming on, and I hope we'll see you again next time. Some, sometime. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. It's, it's been my pleasure and my joy. God bless you.